Our guest now is fascinated with history, heritage architecture and the buildings that reflect our past. She's the former Christchurch City Councillor Anna Crichton, who was made a Dane Companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2020, honouring decades of service to heritage preservation and governance. Dame Anna's efforts to preserve old buildings in her hometown of Christchurch and in other parts of the country have resulted in many being saved from the wrecking ball. Those efforts intensified after the 2011 Canterbury earthquake, where so many damaged heritage buildings faced demolition. In, mean, in, in fact, many did go. But her, member, her memoir, Still Standing, is not just about the buildings and the advocacy for which she is shown. Uh, so well known. It is a very personal story, revealing a difficult childhood and also a struggle for a sense of self-esteem. It's uh, surprising perhaps for someone who has had such a public uh, profile. It is called Still Standing, Anna Crichton's memoir. She's with us in the Christchurch studio. Morena Daimena, lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Catherine. Greetings. It does have a double meaning, doesn't it, that it's still standing? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm still standing. <laughs> and uh, a lot of my buildings that I've had a hand in are still standing. Really significant, important buildings, um, which have, the saving of which have proved to be absolutely beneficial in all ways. The personal story is remarkable, but it also tells us how this came to become such a passion in your life. Uh, it also tells us something, a little bit of the determination and the self-realisation that happened for you, it seems, later, much later in life, Anna. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. I was um, I was pretty much adrift for quite a few decades from when I was born. And, uh, yes, it, it sort of crept up on me, like things do. And uh, I appreciated the fact that History was important to um, to our lives, which includes heritage buildings, of course. And I also I also uh, was very taken with C.S. Lewis when he said, "You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending." And I think it's probably part of my philosophy or my drive to better the environment that we live in. It's very interesting that it was later in life that you graduated at Canterbury and Otago Universities, became Registrar of Christchurch's Robert McDougall Art Gallery, 20 years there. So it was kind of midlife on that the study and the professional approach to this love of heritage happened. But what I love about the book is the detail from your childhood of this house there and that house there and this street there. You seem to have an eye for the built environment right from the start. Yes, yes. Starting with my the, big, my, the first seven years of my life in my grandmother's villa, which was everything that I can picture still with from the antimacassars. It was a really Edwardian villa. The heavy satin, uh, the heavy velvet curtains, the the um, lithographs on the walls, all those sorts of things, and I just loved going down there and, and visiting my nana, who was pretty pretty old, uh, um, stuck in her ways, and she used to have me fetching and calling, fetching for her, and she'd say, 
you have to do that for me because I've got a bone in my leg. And I thought, wow, she's got a bone in her leg. So, of course, I would run around and do all her chores for her. But I loved the environment. The challenges of childhood, it's not until we are older that we come to see them. When you're a child, the way things are and what happens to you are the way things are and what happens to you. Fair? Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's so you, you kind of absorb this and just think this is the way things are. And then it's later that you can bring an adult's perspective, a broader perspective. But how would you describe your, your, your home your home life, there was a lack of affection. There was a lack of that physical expression of love that's so important to young, to children. Yes, there was, and that included my brother as well, except he had an advantage in that uh, he was spoilt. Um, my mother spoilt him because he was her favourite, and my nana spoilt him because he was her favourite, and he would get all the outings and all the all the fun stuff, and I'd be left at home. So, but our father was quite authoritarian. He was very strict. And um, I tell the story in my book where he would tie me, as a toddler, he would tie me in my chair until I'd finished my dinner. And uh, I wasn't allowed to leave until I had. And it would be this ghastly, ghastly watery cabbage that had been Boiled till it went pink, and then any goodness down the sink, and I just—it was just—I'd heave, but no, I had to sit there, tied there, until I'd finished it. So he was very, very strict, and uh, no doubt I had the wooden spoon treatment more than a few times, but that's the way it was. My mother was very spoiled as a as a young woman, and. Uh, my father put her on a pedestal and called her princess, and she just lived for herself, really. So um, Ralph and I were left to just get on with things, I suppose. Practically cared for, but not those other exactly not those other things. I, yeah, I cannot ever remember sitting on my mother's knee or cuddling or anything at all like that. There's an element of social history here too. Anna, at a time and a place, you were born classic baby boomer right at the end of World War One. I. I don't think your father served, though. What, World War Two. World War Two. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and I, I don't think your father served, though. But but there there was this sort of a um, there were the there was the way things were. Yes. Uh, at, the, at that time as well, yeah. and, and, and the, the properness of it, and and you mentioned your brother. Um, you know, he got to play the sport and got to got to get the musical instruments training, and you were told you'll grow up and get married and have children, and you don't really need those things, pretty yep. much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Born in yes. a nursing home on a sand hill at the corner of England Street and Gloucester Street. Again, the visuals of this, the the, the place of Christchurch, of this is everywhere. But it wasn't just Christchurch because you moved around a bit as a child. Yes, we went to Dunedin when I was seven. We stayed there for seven years. And uh, I, I just loved Dunedin. The, my years in Dunedin were just fabulous. And um, it was just, a, 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 for some reason, it was just happy, happy memories from then. Incredible heritage there, Anna. And uh, oh, a lot yes. of conversation happening right now oh, around yes. the future of its heritage buildings. Yeah. 
It's just extraordinary that we used to go for Sunday drives and uh, even even back then, on one occasion, we visited Larnox Castle and it was, an, it was in a ruin. It hadn't been. It was just sitting there in ruin. There was long grass all around it and what have you. And I gazed at it in wonderment and I thought, I'd love to live there one day and restore it. And I don't know where that came from, but that's what I, I remember thinking that. Then and there was another move with your father's job uh, back to Christchurch. You didn't you didn't want to to go. What what age and stage were you at here? Because um, there was a rebellion, so to speak, <laughs> there was. A, a rebellious streak in, in in your teens. And what what was the story with coming back to Christchurch from Dunedin? Well, because I'd been so happy there, um, I didn't want to come back to Christchurch, and. Uh, my mother did suggest that I stay there and board, but my father wouldn't hear of that. So it, it took me away from everyth- everything that I had found familiar and fun, and it was just it, I just was so happy there. And then I was 14, and I was moved uh, from Otago Girls High School up to Christchurch. To I ended up at Christchurch Girls High School, uh, and I was 14, as I said, and I just couldn't cope with the move. The, I, was, I was a bright student uh, in the A class. They transferred me into the A class at Christchurch Girls High. But I just couldn't catch up somehow. I just, it, it was just all too much for me. And, um, and I suffered from migraines and, and probably just taking to my room I suppose yeah do you think the migraines were stress induced or did they just add to the stress I don't know I mm. don't know yeah I just knew that um, once I left home they seemed to stop hmm. you write again if we talk about the social history of the time you write of the Christchurch girls who wore gloves and pearls and mimicked their mother <laughs> and the naughty girls <laughs> the rebel girls which one were you oh definitely the rebel girls I, I found the um, I found the rebelliousness of some of the girls there really really wonderful. I thought I've I've got to be one of them. I, I don't think it was consciously said to me myself that, but I I did think well they have they have a bit of fun. Yeah, I just and it was just good. So good motorbikes at the gate, motorbikes <laughs> at the school gates. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I was only I was only at Christchurch Girls for just a year before <clears throat> my parents were summoned to the headmistress's office to say I would be a really really good idea if um if Anna left and did something else. What happened then? Well, my mother insisted. She was a bit horrified. She, she said, right, you've got to go to Digby's and learn shorthand and typing. Wow. I found that absolutely boring. And uh, I used to play hockey from the classes till my mother found out. And uh, so I, then I had to get a job. So I looked around and I found, I found a great job with Garrett, Carla, Shaw and Clifford. And Ogilvy Garth Clifford was the grand, was the son of Mar Clifford, who opened, who was a famous 
landlady in Christchurch. I think she, I can't remember in exactly how many properties, but uh, they were all fairly slummy and run down. And I mean, they were in the hundreds of these properties. And she was absolutely well known. She was a character figure in the city. And uh, so I applied for a job there as office manager, and I got it. And I was 16 years old, 15, 16. And uh, all I did was collect rent. People would come there to pay their rent. When you write your next book, Anna, <laughs> I think you've got an historical fiction from this bizarre setup. You were the only employee. <laughs> Yes, yes. He was Actually, living off funny, his funds, this that. well-named gentleman, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yes, he, Ogilvy Garth. Where was it's it quite... in the city, for those who you know love and remember it the was old... in It was in Hereford Street, mm. and uh, in the old... It's uh, it's now known as the Mike Perrow Building, but it's not that anymore, of course. But it still exists, and I can still picture it, and uh, inside where the office was... Yes. There are many challenges to come um, in this incredible story, uh, but tell us please about the, the stay in the convent. Magdala, was it? Or, or, um, the Mount Magdala. Mag- Mount Magdala. Uh, yeah. Where was this yeah. in Christchurch? It was in Hallsville, right out in the paddocks. And uh, how my parents even learnt about it, I don't know. But I was so wild by then that. They were obviously didn't have the skill or the will to do anything with me, so they thought they'd pass me over to the Sisters of the Good Shepherd to see if they could straighten me out. So they put me in there, and I had no idea where I was going, but it was a it was an interesting experience. I call it later. I used to call it my finishing school, because truly, what was I, sixteen? And all the wards of court would be sent there, um, all the naughty girls, the delinquents. And uh, I was the only one that was put there privately by their own parents. So I was in there with all these girls who were pretty, pretty um, rough. And most of them had been abused in some way. And they were an extraordinary lot of personalities there. But they didn't take to me because I was different, which made it a bit difficult to 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 live there. But the nuns were always good to me. Um, and but the work, the work and the laundry, the Magdalen laundries are quite famous worldwide. Yeah. They started in the film Philomena, right? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And. Uh, so it, we did all the sheets, pillowcases, tablecloths, all that white stuff for the posh hotels in the city and ma- working mangles and all sorts of stuff. Um, I, it was just, it was, basically it was hard labour. It was hard labour. And uh, I, it was all, I hated it. I hated it. I thought, how do I get out of here? My parents would visit and I'd say, please take me home. And they didn't. No, you've got to stay here. So in the end, I collaborated with one of the other girls to run away. And that's we planned it well 
as much as a 16-year-old can, can plan a reckless and oh, adventurous abscond- absconding. So we did. Instead of going to chapel one evening, which we did every night, we slipped out the back. We had to run across a fairly big open area and then climb a wall. Then there was a demarcation line uh, space. Then we had to get over the next one, which was really bad because that had barbed wire around the top. But we made it. And then because it was out in the country, we just ran and ran and ran across paddocks until we just about dropped and we came across a little creek so we stopped there for the night and we ate a few things that we'd taken from the kitchen and uh, tried to stay there for the night. We didn't get much sleep of course but the police had been alerted and when we decided in the morning we'd make our way to Lincoln Road and get a a ride in somewhere. We could hear the police and the dog, police dogs coming, barking, looking for us. It was quite, it was quite um, frightening, really. But anyway, they found us, and uh, it was after that my parents decided to take me home. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. This kind of, um, this kind of youth can do two things. It can suppress and oppress and make some acquiescent, and more on that in a moment, right? Or it can make someone tough and strong and resilient and bloody-minded. Um, it seems for you it, w- it was the latter. Yes. You yes. headed overseas quite young on an OE too, right? About 20? No. I, the first time I went overseas is when I was 16. Right. When I finally went home and... Uh, I thought, I, I, I don't want to stay here. I just don't want to stay here. So I had a cousin in um, Sydney. So I said to my mother and father, I want to go over there. And they let me. So I got on the Wanganella and went over to Sydney. I was 16. And I found work there and stayed in a boarding house. And the boarding house, uh, Millie Phillips, who had the boarding house, little Polish lady, she... she if you, if you Google her now, she turned out to be a multi-billionaire because she started in that boarding house um, and she started investing in mining shares. She became absolutely rich. There's another she, story. You're going to be writing <laughs> novels for the rest of your life. <laughs> she, but she was feisty. You know, you'd, yeah. you'd line up every Thursday night and pay your board. Yeah, it was good. That's good. Anna Crichton, our guest, still standing, a memoir. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. There was an early marriage, and the beautiful thing of an early marriage is your son, and you pay tribute to him as an adult and a father and and a partner and a son. Yes. But that marriage was very difficult, and that marriage was violent, Anna. Yes, yes, extremely so. For how long did you stay in it, and how did you leave it? Um, be well over, well over two years I stayed there, because I stayed there because I didn't want people to think that I'd been unsuccessful, even in marriage. I stayed there because 
I got beaten to a point where I had lost all sense of everything. And I stayed there because I didn't know what to do. Um, I, I had no support mechanism anywhere else. There were no women's refuge in those days. I think the worst probably experience that I can think of, or one of the worst, was when he was trying to strangle me. And um, somehow I got away. I went, to the, I went to the police station and I said, please help me. My, my, my neck was all bruised and swollen and it was a real mess. And the, the, I can still see the policeman, he's just said, we'll take you home and have a word with him. I said, no, you can't do that. If, if, if you do that, he'll kill me. He's threatened to kill me if I tell anybody. Just help me. But no, that was, that's what the police did then. Uh, there was no, nothing else. You do leave. Um, yes. At, at what point, Anna, at what point did, did life change? I mean, people are listening to your amazing story and they're thinking of you as the city councillor and the heritage campaigner and, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, the person who ran the, ran the Robert McDougall for 20 years. How do we get from this incredibly challenging start to life to there? Where, where, where did and how did that happen? It came, it came with the birth of my son. I was determined. It gave me the strength and I was determined that he was not going to. He was not going to um, have a life like mine. I wanted to, him to have love, security and a good life. And the, the straw that broke the camel's back was when my husband was trying to drug me. He was giving me chloral hydrate to do unspeakable things to me while I was drugged. And on this particular occasion, I fought him and I w wasn't going to take it. And he was forcing me to try and take it. And all I could hear was, Mama, Mama. And Dorian tottled in and he was thrown against the wall and that just, something snapped, just snapped. And I thought, right, this is it. And I just grabbed him and ran over the road to the neighbour. And that's, I left. And it was after that that I had to rebuild a life. I had to do it for him. So uh, because my husband had threatened to leave the country and take him with me, I wanted to get a job out of the city. So I got a housekeeping job in Waikari. And uh, it was wonderful. It gave, it, it, it gave me a sanctuary. And then I did school cert by correspondence. I thought I've got to up my qualifications. I had nothing, no qualifications whatsoever. So I did my school cert by correspondence and I'd have to go in at the end of the year and sit in the classroom with all the high school students to sit the exam. I passed that. Then I decided I'd do my university entrance and I did exactly the same thing by correspondence and past that, so that gave me a bit of, bit of uh, self-esteem to be able to, and mm -hmm. confidence mm -hmm. to to go forward. Mm -hmm. And after that, it was just a 
whole lot of adventures, <laughs> which, which which just kept coming. Um, you changed your name at one point. I think this is in the 80s now on the Milford track and a, and a, and a French person sharing the hut says, you are not an Anne, you are definitely an Anna. And this, yes. was, this was part of, of fully becoming you. Let's look at some of these incredible achievements there. Well, you went on um, and did, you did your PhD, I think, on the Robert McDougall Art Gallery, yes. right? That was yes. at the University of Otago, the awarded collection. with distinction. That was actually at the time of the earthquakes, wasn't it? That was finished, the Christchurch earthquakes. Yes, I was halfway through doing my PhD with with the earthquakes. I had to ask for a six-month holiday for the simple reason my house was munted. And uh, I was pretty shaken up. And it, it's it's just my house was right between the Pinegall Guinness Building and the and the other one, and just on the other side of Latimer Square. CTV, was, yeah. C, that, that, yeah. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Um, yes, and it was just right in the middle of it. Yeah. So both of those came down. Yeah. Of course. Goodness. So yeah, and of course I had my computer upstairs with with some of my work in. I had all my drafts and everything. But the worst thing about my PhD were all the archives closed down because of the earthquake. So that made things difficult. It was finished though. I what did the, finish it. What was the first building you were passionate about saving? Well, funnily enough, it goes back to 1996 with the Kaiapoi Woolen Mills building in Manchester Street. Beautiful old building, lots of memories for a lot of people, and uh, it was just a typical, a typical warehouse type building that you see in cities, and uh, it was going to be demolished for a car yard, and I thought, why, why would you do that? I even talked to the people who wanted to demolish it and say, look. Just just get a bit visionary here. Imagine the ground floor of this with a lovely polished floor and lights on your spotlights on your special cars that you want to sell. It would be different. You'd be different from all those other car yards up and down Morehouse Avenue. Just try and... But no, they do, it got demolished. And uh, I thought, right, somebody has to go out there and champion this because there, there was no way that city council would get behind it at that stage. Heritage wasn't even on its agenda then. And uh, so that's how it all started from that. So the trust was Christchurch Heritage Limited. The Christchurch Heritage Trust you founded in 96. <clears throat> yes. It purchased yes. the Trinity Church in, in Worcester Street, saved that from demolition, the Theatre Royale, Isaac Theatre Royale. Oh, well, that was a team. A team, was a, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Trinity Church was another. Shan's Building's an interesting oh, one, isn't it? Yes. Just a simple, it was the first uh, gro- uh, retail shop, wasn't it? Um, just a little wooden Building, yeah. but with so much history, right? Yeah, 1865 it was built. And it came on the agenda, obviously, um, over 25 years. We spoke to you at the time of the earthquakes, and I know this is probably another <laughs> challenging part of the, of the story, because the response was to demolish and to rebuild as quickly as possible. And... Um, 
you were chair of the Canterbury Earthquake Heritage Buildings Fund Trust. Yes. What, what were the wins, and then what are your frustrations of that time? Post-earthquake, um, the, the city was run from Wellington, basically, and the plans or the blueprint was to, to, to demolish most of the central city. It wasn't, it wasn't done in stages or whatever. It was just demolished, like Manchester Street. Both sides of Manchester Street just wiped out. I called it a scorched earth policy, just wiped out without thought. And it was very difficult to, to save anything. But uh, what came out of that was the Canterbury Earthquake Heritage Building Fund. The government put that in. I represented New Zealand Historic Places Trust and chaired it. And the government would contribute dollar for dollar for any build any fundraising we did. So we asked for donations and what have you. And I think we got a we, for example, we got a donation of five million dollars from a benefactor in America, which he wanted to put towards the art centre of Christchurch. And so he gave us five million, so therefore the government had to put in five million. So that ten million helped towards the restoration of the art centre. The other, the other big major um, win, I think, out of that there were a lot of a lot of applications, because I'm, I'm going to digress here. Sorry, a lot of applications because. The demolition of buildings was just signed off by somebody at CERA, Canterbury Earthquake Recovery Authority, was signed off because an engineer would say it's not safe. Well, all the owners of heritage buildings who just didn't want them, they rushed in with their engineer saying it's not safe and um, they got signed off and demolished. So it was it was pretty pretty hard going. But we got enough money in our fund so a developer who wanted to keep a heritage building would come to us for a grant to help them uh, weatherproof it or make it safe enough to keep it and do the restoration later. So that's what that was about. Now, uh, Fletcher's offered a a million dollars to go into the fund and the CEO of Fletcher's at that time was a guy called Mark Bins. And uh, he contacted me and he said, right, we're going to give a million. What, you tell me which building uh, that we should put it towards. So I, he came down to Christchurch. We went round a few and I said, that one there, high profile, on the corner, really worth saving. And that was the old AJ White's building on the corner of Churm Street and High Street. It, it, it really is an anchor. It's a landmark anchor building. So that saved that building. So that's how that fund worked. And it worked on small buildings as well as the larger ones. It was very exciting. There were wins. Uh, yes. There have been many wins in your story. I've got people asking for more that we just don't have time for. Someone wanting to talk about how you brought Dean Linda Patterson to New Zealand. And oh, I know you would tell yes. Can you tell it in one minute? Oh, golly. No? Well, I, came, <laughs> I, st- I stayed with her when I was in Oxford in, right. in England. Yeah. And uh, she said, I've always wanted to go to New Zealand. Would you help me? And I said, yes, of course I will. 
So she she was uh, she was lecturing in theology in at, at um, Oxford. When I came home, I was the mayor's representative on the Cathedral Foundation and the Christchurch Cathedral Foundation. And so I went to the dean Peter Beck and I talked to him about Linda, showed him the CV. He said, "Very interesting." We'll have a we'll have a conversation about that, and that's how it all started. And of course, she ultimately became uh, yes, appointed she did. as and dean of Christchurch Cathedral. Yeah, yes, yes. And we could go on for hours. You have got about three or four historical novels to write, just from your own <laughs> personal stories in here. Thank yeah. you for your generosity and your time. Thank you. Anna Crichton, still standing, a memoir is published by Canterbury University Press.